Are you familiar with the name Edward Kimball? Most Christians probably wouldn't recognize that name. Let me toss you another name. D.L. Moody. You're going, okay, that sounds familiar. Uh, Dwight Lyman Moody uh, was born February 5th in 1837. Perhaps the best known evangelist in America up to the time of the Reverend Billy Graham. Now imagine... Ed Kimball, the name that most people don't recognize, uh, he was Moody's Sunday school teacher visiting D.L. at the shoe store where Moody worked and leading him to Christ. Although people don't know the name Edward Kimball, they do D.L. Moody, and he changed the world. Like the Apostle Paul, God supernaturally, and I want to emphasize the word supernaturally, brought 144,000 Jews the Christ. They then lead an innumerable multitude to the Lord. That is the passage we are about to study. And I'd like to uh, give you a term. It's proleptic. Proleptic. Uh, which denotes to take beforehand. We will see that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists travel the globe, lead a vast amount of people to Christ. And what we have is the result of their witness and what happens throughout the remainder of the tribulation period. So it's given to us ahead of time. In other words, the 144,000 get saved at the beginning of the tribulation, lead an innumerable multitude to Christ, and then we see the results thereof. So here's my question for you as I uh, prep to read uh, to you Revelation 7, 9 through 17. How can the child of God prepare for eternity? In other words, what should you be doing now in order to be ready to stand before the Lord forever? Revelation 7, excuse me, uh, let me read to you verses 9 through 17. That's Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb 
who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you bow your heads with me as I lead us in prayer? Father, I thank you for transporting us, if you will, to that third time zone. Looking into the future, Lord, thank you for what we learned from the past. The beautiful description of Jesus Christ, the resurrected and glorified Lord. Also, we appreciate learning about the seven churches that were contemporaneous to John, the things which are. And now, as we continue on our journey through that third time zone in the future, help us to understand and appreciate the heart of God and all that will be accomplished, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me uh, begin with point number one. Praise God for your victorious salvation. That's verses 9 and 10. Praise God for your victorious salvation. What we have before us is a new vision. As you look at verse 9, you observe the words after these things. And you're going, okay, they're familiar going back to chapter 4 in verse 1. But we also have the verb of perception. I looked, which tells us that the book is not moving on chronologically, but that a new vision is given. And that is what we have. This is a distinct vision from chapter 7, 1 through 8. We continue. And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. The above vision, chapter 7, 1 through 8, had a specific number. There were 12,000 Jewish males saved from each of the tribes of Israel. 144,000 in totality. But here we have an innumerable multitude. It shows that it is distinct from the above account, but yet is linked to it because this is the result of the evangelism of the 144,000. Notice the widespread witness. It was all nations. Literally, the Greek says of every nation. It refers here to Gentiles. Same term appears in chapter 11, verse 2, of the Gentiles. So we have Gentiles saved from around the globe. Notice as well, we have tribes, tribes. The word here most likely is referring to Jews. Same word uh, that is used in 7, chapter 7, 5 through 8 for the Jews appears here as well. Then it talks about peoples and tongues. Tongues here is from glossa. First of all, used of the physical tongue and then the tongue as an organ of speech. It shows that God's grace will be manifested throughout the world through the 144,000 evangelists who lead this vast group of people to the Lord. They're described here as standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You have to ask the question at this point, is this scene pertaining to the millennial kingdom? In other words, does this take us to that future time 
when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. And I want to point out to you three reasons why I don't think so. I believe this is pertaining to the tribulation period. Reason number one, uh, the scene is the same as that of chapters four and five. Where were we before the tribulation officially commences in the throne room of God? And there we learned about the activity that occurs just prior to the tribulation period. Same setting. Also, Jesus is not sitting on the throne. Down in verse 10, we see that the Father is. But yet, when Christ comes back the second time, he will establish his kingdom and sit on the throne. And then thirdly, the Gentiles would not be serving in the temple. Uh, during the millennial kingdom. So, when you think about it, that was reserved for the Jews. These three reasons, I think, show us that what happens, 144,000 supernaturally saved, lead an innumerable multitude to the Lord, and these ones, many of whom are slaughtered for their faith and are transported to the throne room of God, even during the tribulation period. Notice how they're described. Clothed with white robes. White robes. What's the uh, significance there? Well, it connects us back to chapter 6. So would you flip the page backward and come down to verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, that would be Jesus, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This speaks about the individuals who come to Christ during the tribulation and are martyred for their faith. They're described as under the altar, the altar of incense, praying to God to judge the inhabitants of the earth, those wicked people that have killed them. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge or judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. See the idea of the white robe? It shows their righteousness and that redeemed status before God. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So you see the connection there. But I love the idea that they are redeemed. Remember the song? Redeemed, redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed, redeemed, his child forever I am. So they're clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Uh, During the Feast of Tabernacles, and we learn this from Leviticus 23 in verse 40, that palm branches are used for rejoicing. And then... In John chapter 12, and why don't you turn here with me, please. Same writer who pens Revelation. John chapter 12. Notice now down in verse 13. This is Christ's triumphal entry. He comes into Jerusalem, and the people give him a superficial celebration. They want a Messiah who's going to put down the Romans. They want a conqueror. They're not looking for a savior. Remember, he came to his own and his own received him not. So in 1213, this is John, 
took out branches of palms and went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king. See, they're looking for the king. The king of Israel. But what did they have in their hands? Palm branches. It shows victory. It's an emblem of victory. So back with me to chapter 7 of Revelation. Down in verse 10, and they were crying out with a loud voice. The word crying here from Kradzo means to continually cry out. It's a present tense verb. And what are they saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. The term salvation. But it's also used with the nuance, the shade of meaning of victory. The victory over sin that they had experienced. And I want to show you how this term is used elsewhere. Revelation chapter 12. Would you turn there? Revelation chapter 12 takes us to the second half of the tribulation called the great tribulation. Satan who has had access to the presence of God. See to give an account of what he was doing as the book of Job as we saw in chapters 1 and 2. Is going to be expelled from heaven. In other words, Michael and his angels at God's directive will kick Satan and his angels, the demons, out of heaven permanently. And now down in verse 10 of chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation. See, the idea there of victory. Why? Because Satan is put out. And strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him. See the idea again of victory. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Another example over in chapter 19 of Revelation. In chapters 17 and 18, we learn about the destruction of Babylon. And contrary to popular belief that holds that uh, Babylon is not a literal entity, I think we'll see clearly when we get to chapters 17 and 18, as predicted in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, Babylon will be rebuilt, a literal physical Babylon and destroyed. The wicked kingdom going all the way back to the time of Nimrod in Genesis 10 and 11 will finally be destroyed. So what's the response? Look at chapter 19, 1 and 2. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude, where they had in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation. See the idea of victory. And glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged a great harlot, Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So I want you to think about this. When the praise is being offered to the Lord, saying salvation belongs to our God, there is a sense here of victory that is being offered to the Lord. But it's not just to God the Father but also, as we see in Revelation 7, down in verse 10, and to the Lamb. The Lamb. It's interesting that when you study here, 
the terminology that is used, the word is often used of an emperor. See, someone of great power. Who is the savior in our context? Father and son. He's the victor. And he gives us victory, does he not? And it's a victory worth celebrating. Consider, we have a victory over sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Because of our identification with Christ. Positionally, when Christ died, we died with him. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. But even in the resurrection, we are identified with the one who conquered death. And that's what we see in Romans 6.4. And that is why now we have a newness of life. We have victory over sin. We also have victory over Satan. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, arrange yourself under him, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Hmm. We also have victory over death. The great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of our glorified bodies in the future resurrections, yet the time of the rapture. We are told, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. What victory? The victory over death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So today, even death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. We have a lot to celebrate. We have a God who is victorious and gives us the victory. So praise God for your victorious salvation. Number two, worship God for his magnificent nature. Worship God for his magnificent nature. Down in verse 11, we see the angels. And by the way, the angels do not experience salvation. But then we also have the elders representing the church, the four living creatures. And what do they all do in unison? They fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God. Because of the victory in Christ. Because of the salvation that he offers. And the end result of being in his presence. There is worship. We should worship God for the salvation we experience. We should worship God when souls are saved. There are a number of short stories, if you will. We can call them parables over in Luke chapter 15. And they reveal the heart of God that God delights like with the prodigal son who returns. When that one lost sheep is found, there is rejoicing. So let me read to you from Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors to gather together saying, and here's your word, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
See, there's a celebration. There's a rejoicing in the presence of God. There is genuine worship, a kissing toward, if you will. Perhaps the concept of bowing down and blowing kisses toward the one you adore. That is what is going to take place at this point. And notice specifically verse 12, saying amen. The group in 711 gives a hearty endorsement to the statement of the redeemed. Notice what we have down in verse 12 are seven attributes of God. I want to point out that each one of these attributes has the definite article before it, the word the, showing how distinct each one is. And to give individual emphasis, but we have the number seven. And God is worthy, the perfect one, of continual praise. So what do we have here? Blessing, the first one that is mentioned. Eulogia, to speak well of, to eulogize. May I point out to you that we should forever praise God. He is eternally blessed. Jesus himself, according to Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, is eternally blessed. And now God through Christ has blessed us, this is Ephesians 1.3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So what should we do? Bless him continually. Also acknowledge his glory. glory. Vines writes about the aspect of glory. It's here is honor derived from earning a good reputation. Does our God have a good reputation? He saves souls. Certainly he does. So we offer him, we ascribe to him the glory due his name. And then we have wisdom. Wisdom. Think about the salvation of God and his plan through the ages. Such a wise God. Beginning way back with Abraham, pointing us through David to Jesus Christ. An extraordinary plan. Our God is all wise. And then thanksgiving, it denotes gratitude. It's the concept of appreciation. We need to be grateful for the salvation we have. And then our fifth one is honor here, which means to value someone or something. Our God is to be valued because he's priceless above all others and everything else. Number six is power, dunamis here. The idea of ability to have the capacity to carry out what God wants to do. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He is everywhere and knows all things. <laughs> Amazing. That is who our God is. And in number seven, might. It refers to a quality one possesses. See, the strength, regardless if he uses it or not. He is all-powerful. So the saying here, amen, the seven attributes be to our God, how long? Forever and ever. God is always and perpetually to be exalted. And then we have a final amen. The truthfulness of their characterization of God. 
They acknowledge who God is and they say he is the true one. So number one, let's praise God for your victorious salvation. Number two, worship God for his magnificent nature. He is truly unique. And now number three, serve God now to prepare for eternity. Serve God now to prepare for eternity. Down in verse 13 of chapter 7, then one of the elders answered saying to me, it's interesting he gives an answer, John hadn't verbalized a question, but the elder knows one is coming. The question, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? That points us back to 611, remember? The souls under the altar, the ones that are slain throughout the tribulation period. <laughs> I love John's response. Have you ever talked to some people and regardless what you speak to them about, they know about that subject. It doesn't matter. They know everything. Uh, John doesn't pretend to be knowledgeable about things he doesn't understand. That's a wise way to be. Verse 14, and I said to him, Sir, you know, and the you know here is emphatic from the Greek. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Observe the words, great tribulation. The word tribulation means pressure or affliction. When you have it used in the technical sense, it refers to the seven-year period of time called the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. But when you have the word great prefixed, when you have the idea of great tribulation, it refers to the second half. Of the tribulation. It refers to the period of time, even in Matthew 24 21, when the Antichrist comes and he sets up that abomination of desolation, the idol that comes to life in the temple. And Jesus essentially says, When you see that, flee and run to the mountains. But it is the time of the great tribulation where things are ratcheted up. The judgments become more intense. And Jesus says it well that in Matthew 24, 22, that unless those days were shortened, unless there were a limited amount of time, no flesh would survive the tribulation. And that statement is also made in the context of the great tribulation. We have to observe this. See, Satan gets expelled from heaven, Revelation 12. He knows his time is short. So he really goes after the saints and the Jews. Now keep in mind that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation doesn't pertain to the church age. Back in Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my promise to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, says Jesus to the church of Philadelphia, which will come upon the entire earth. We will be delivered before the period of wrath, but these are the ones who are saved in the tribulation, and then endure martyrdom. That's who is being addressed here. And also observe that these ones come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in what? The blood of the Lamb. 
Jesus had saved them and it now gave them that redeemed status and that is why we have this celebration. And now down here in verse 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and observe what they do and serve him day and night in the temple. John Walverd has given us a great statement about this. This expression is highly significant for it indicates that heaven is not only a place of rest from earthly toil, but also a place of privileged service. Those who have served well on earth will have a ministry in heaven. So important. Why have we been saved? Why is it that the Father sent the Son who went to the cross, took our sin upon himself, and then conquered death, ministered for 40 days to disciples, ascended to the right hand of the Father, sat down, and then dispatched his Holy Spirit to indwell a believer. What is it all about? Why is it that this was done? Well, it's number one, so we could believe on the finished work of Christ. That if we had wrong thinking about who Jesus is, we repent of that. Knowing that he truly is the eternal Son of God who is our substitute and put our faith in him who conquered death. But after we are saved, it is to serve the Lord. That's the order, as you know well, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved. See, it's not of works. But then in Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You have been saved, not only to worship God, but then to serve him perpetually. And as we serve him now, that is preparation for what we will be doing before him forever and ever and ever. Right now, Titus 2.13 tells us, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then it goes on to say, who was given to us to redeem us and to purify for himself his own special people. And listen to the words, zealous for good works. We should be looking for opportunities to serve our God. This is all in preparation for the eternal service to come. And may I just point out a note of encouragement. Often when I write to people who have done some kind of service for the Lord, blessing the church, I affix to it Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. That God does not forget your work and labor of love that you have shown to the saints. In essence, God has a notebook with your name on it. What does he do? He marks down when you even give someone a cup of cold water in his name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we learn about our future judgment, how our works, yes, our works, which will testify that we are saved, will be examined, scrutinized. Our motives will be looked at at that point. And those who have built, built upon the foundation with good doctrine, Right motives 
will receive a reward that'll last eternally. That's exciting, and God never forgets what we have done for him. And then we close out verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Uh, That is the Father. Uh, The Son is the one who is standing there as described in verse 17. And verse 16 talks about what these redeemed saints who are martyred during the tribulation will experience. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst. Going back to chapter 6 and verse 6 of the same book, it spoke about a famine to come. These individuals will never hunger or thirst. It is intriguing, is it not? In Matthew 5 and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then the sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Multiple times throughout the tribulation, the physical sun is struck which will impact the temperature on the earth. These individuals will never, if you will, have sunburn or burning again. And down in verse 17, for the lamb, yes, Jesus Christ, who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. Christ interacting with them forever and caring for them and observe God's kindness and his compassion. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How extraordinary is that? How can a child of God prepare for eternity? Well, we praise God for his victorious salvation, what he has given us. We worship him for his magnificent nature. And then we serve him now to prepare for eternity. And I'd like to give you an assignment this week. And you can pick this up starting tomorrow, Monday. Look with me at chapter 7 in verse 12. Remember the sevenfold attributes given to the Father? We see the word blessing Number one, glory. Number two, wisdom. Number three, thanksgiving. Four, honor. Five, power. Six, and might. Seven. Pick one each day. Start off with blessing on Monday and practice blessing the Lord. Jesus is eternally blessed. I pointed out earlier from Romans 9, 5. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. So take the entire day and just focus on blessing, speaking well of the Lord. And then your day two, you go down to glory. Bring him glory. Honor him for who he is. And then day three, wisdom, and on and on and on throughout the week. Get used to adoring the Lord, worshiping him, serving him. But by thinking about him throughout the day, even next week with these seven attributes. Let's prepare for eternity let's pray thank you heavenly father another magnificent section portion of the word of god that we've been able to study we thank you for your heart revealed once again a heart to reach the lost for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost 
Thank you for raising up those 144,000. Thank you for the result of their evangelism and the innumerable multitude. And thank you that even now we can imitate the heart of God and go out and reach out to the lost. And as we are reaching out and as we are serving, may we dwell upon the perfections or attributes of God. May we pick one each day and just dwell upon the greatness of God. Prepare our hearts through our worship, through our service. Prepare our hearts, Father, to be ready when we step into your presence to continue serving you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.